This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. This week we have three very familiar voices to fans of ATP Tennis Radio coming literally from all corners of the globe to look ahead to what will hopefully be a mixture of Masters 1000 and Grand Slam action over the coming weeks and months. I'm Seb Lozier and shortly I'll be joined by commentators Jill Krabus, who's currently in Missouri, USA, Naomi Cavaday in London and Peter Mercato who is locked down in Melbourne Australia. But first, to let you know that ATP Tennis Radio will bring you live ball-by-ball commentary over the coming months, starting with the Western and Southern Open, usually in Cincinnati, but this year forming part of the US Open bubble. We'll then simulcast the US Open before bringing you the Internazionale Biennale d'Italia in Rome at the end of September, and that will lead into our simulcast of Roland Garros, also, of course, on the clay. Finally, COVID-19 permitting, we'll end the year with commentary of the Rolex Paris Masters and then the Nito ATP Finals at London's O2. Peter, Naomi and Jill will all be involved along the way and we bedded in for a chat across three different time zones, all of which have been and are still being affected by COVID-19, including Jill in the States. The cases pretty much were starting to get a little bit better here. And then all of a sudden, every all the states pretty much started to rise again. So I think it's been a little bit discouraging from that standpoint. I think, um, you know, in the beginning, we were trying to take some certain precautions. And then I think, you know, we had a few holiday weekends where I think a lot of people, yeah, I think just like anywhere, you know, there's a lot of young people that they just aren't feeling sick. So after a couple months, you just start to get a little bit complacent. Everyone started to go out and have social gatherings again. And that's when all of our cases started to rise again. But unfortunately, here in the States, I don't necessarily feel like we're doing that great of a job. I mean, I think some precautions could have been a little bit more strict earlier on. And I think a lot of people are just starting to get you know, a little bit tired and, and sick. They want to, you know, a lot of people want to work again. And I think it's just been, it's been really difficult, but it's, it's for me, it's really sad to see that our cases just, um, just keep rising and rising. And I think, you know, it's, it's just sad because I think there are a lot of other parts of the world that are doing a really good job of trying to sustain everything. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about New York and uh, what, what you make of, you know, the, the events that we can, Hopefully, look forward to um, there cu- coming up very shortly. But first, you, you were right in the middle of it, in the in the thick of things, weren't you? When the lockdown started, it, you know, Indian Wells was due to start, and all of a sudden, the announcement was made. It must be slightly surreal remembering back to those times now. It is, and I remember I was actually on the East Coast um, just a couple days leading up to when I was scheduled to be in Indian Wells, and. You know, I, I was hearing some things, and, and I, but it didn't seem like it was super, like anyone was taking anything, or that it was that dangerous to be outside. And so when the news came, Indian Wells, at first I was really shocked because it was so sudden. And then as I started thinking about it, you know, Indian Wells is a little bit more of a vulnerable uh, population. It's a little bit more of a retirement community and older population. So, and to bring that sort of big event at that time where, you know, 
the cases started to rise and, you know, there was more talk about that. This is becoming a little bit more serious. So it was definitely, I mean, you can look back at it now and we know that it was the right decision. And at the time, I think it seemed like it was a little bit fast, but when you actually think about all the factors and the population there, it was a really good call for them to sort of cancel that right away. Naomi, you're in the UK. I know pretty much what you've what you've been, you know, through because I we we've been living obviously very similar conditions. But you have at least seen some tennis recently. You know, the Battle of the Brits and everything. I mean, how's that been? We'll come on to talk about it a little bit more depth later. But you know, how do you think that's been received by by the players? I think it's been amazing, really, to have live tennis again. And when the first ball was struck of the very first Battle of the Brits, uh, we've had this whole return to tennis in the UK. So lots of domestic tournaments going on and and they've been been run really well. And then culminating in a, a huge mixed team event, we've had you know the Murrays involved. Dan Evans has come out and been incredibly competitive. Kyle Edmund, we've had all of the, the players out and competing and really wanting to win. At first, I thought... I can't believe how excited I am about what ultimately is an exhibition. I was, I was so excited. It was almost like it was the final of a slam or something. And I was just so ready to commentate on it. I might have gone a bit over the top on the first match, <laughs> but uh, it was it was so great to see it. But then actually, as things kind of transpired, the players were being so competitive. And you realise these are competitive animals they have not been able to get those juices flowing and they were just I mean Dan Evans in the first one was just so desperate to win as as British number one top 30 player now Uh, and they really wanted to kind of sharpen up their games and get set for when the tour resumes and I I think that as a result the British players are all in a, a really good spot right now they've had lots of singles they've had doubles they've had team events they've had all sorts going on they've had to been able to test the bodies you know play a week on have a week off get all of that up to scratch and I think that we'll be at a real advantage kind of going into the season on a slight tangent you're a mental health ambassador too yes this whole period must have really brought that sort of work into a new light really yeah I've done a, a huge amount back when the schools were still kind of they weren't functioning no one was at school but when we were in term time I was doing a lot of sort of school presentations kind of just over zoom or or skype that sort of thing I've also had to deal with way more independent situations than I have been before so a lot of sort of um, young elite players that are kind of up and coming I've had parents contact me and and people um, just trying to figure out, I suppose, what's what. It's been actually a combination of people struggling with this time period, which I think is is probably the case for everyone, really. I think everybody's been up and down with it all. You know, at the beginning, as Jill was saying, it seemed quite fast that things were getting cancelled. And then a couple of months later, people were thinking, we're not going to have any tennis for the rest of the year. Who knows if even in 2021, things are going to kick off. And then suddenly it looked positive again. And, and you know, it, so we were kind of swinging around all over the place. And then also having to try and deal with lockdown and not being able to play and, and do the things that we normally do. But then I think also there's been a lot of players who have just used the time to sort of reflect on where they are, where they're going, coaching situations, um, and have been kind of keen for advice on that do you think players have struggled it's difficult because it is such an incredibly privileged position to be in um to be a tennis player and to be on the tour and yeah I mean your entire life has been completely disrupted and taken away um I've I've been kind of likening it to 
picking up kind of a serious injury, like a six month injury or something, suddenly everything stops and you're back at home. But just this time, you're not the only one missing out. Everybody is. So you don't have quite so much of the the FOMO with the the tour going on. Um, So you do feel like everybody's in the same boat, which I think has probably been the real saving grace for all the players and athletes and everyone involved is that everyone's in the same situation. So you just kind of have to make the best of it. Yeah, everyone right around the world, including the caged animal that is Peter Mercato. I mean, Peter, you're now on lockdown in Melbourne, which wasn't really the case before. Um, You must have been looking on and, well, the rest of the world was kind of looking at Australia and thinking, wow, they're they're doing really well. And then all of a sudden, it kind of it got you. You know, how, how are things over there? Shows how quickly things can change, can't it? Um, we, we were flying along. I had the bags packed. I was ready to come over and see you. Everything was slowly getting back to some sort of normality, even though we're, we're not in total normality at the moment. And, and uh, everyone was thinking, yeah, we're over the worst of this and we've got it all under control. And all of a sudden, we haven't for a variety of different reasons. So we, we went back. Our, our restriction levels started dropping so we could do a hell of a lot more. We could have some sort of normality. We could visit people. We could actually have face-to-face contact, all of that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, it changed. It changed really quickly because the uptick in cases here just kept growing and growing and growing. And we kept setting new records so first it was face masks, mandatory face masks. So I had to take mine off to be able to talk to you today, even though I'm at home. We don't necessarily need them at home, but you can't be too cautious. To um, the, the tightest lockdown, we think actually in the world at the moment, even more than the US, even more than the UK and, and everywhere else. So we're in just a quick rundown. We can only exercise for one hour a day, which you know pretty much suits me. Uh, we... There are no tennis courts open in Melbourne at the moment, just from a tennis perspective, and obviously being the president of my local club, that's that's devastating because Naomi was talking about mental health. It's a good outlet for people to play. It's a good socially distanced sport and everything like that. But in Melbourne, you can't even play tennis at the moment. You can only go out um, shopping for the basics. All of the other stores are, are pretty much closed or you have to order online and you only get one person in the household able to do that. You can't go and visit people unless it's to provide care. Um, most people aren't going to work. It's, it's rush hour or peak hour now in Melbourne. Looking out my window, I can only see one car going past. It's like 3am in the morning and we're in curfew from 8pm till 5am every day. So no one can go out anyway. So it's been really tough. And, and we talk about the roller coaster. It's been a big roller coaster for people. We have had some um, tournament tennis. We had UTR series happening everywhere, pretty much except Melbourne over the, the past couple of months anyway. So all the Aussie players have been playing each other week in, week out. And, and some of them are able to get out of the country. International travel's been restricted, so we can't leave the country. No flights are coming into Melbourne. But uh, some of the Aussie players are going to be heading over to the US shortly. But yeah, it hasn't been fun, let me tell you that much. I do want to come on. It's perfect, actually, segue into talking some more about the players and and these tournaments that are just coming up. Obviously, one, one of them, a Grand Slam. It's, it's funny, I was... I took one of my kids to football a couple of days ago and some of the dads I was talking to were saying, you know, tennis surely is just the perfect sport to be back out. You know, it should be back up and running. They're over, you know, they're miles away from each other. And I said, yeah, but, you know, it's the travel the tra- and, and all of the logistics. It's a nightmare. And, and Australia to the US, perfect case in point. Some of the players famously have decided not to go. Ash Barty, um, Nick Kyrgios, who's probably hogging a few more of the column inches than than uh, than Miss Barty. 
Where do you stand on on that and the fact that they've chosen not to come from an Australian perspective? How, how is Australia kind of receiving that? I don't don't think we mind at the moment. It's all personal choice because everyone's going through different sort of things and people have, have lost jobs over here. They've lost livelihoods. Businesses have, have gone down the drain just because it's just not sustainable. We've got some government support along the way, which has been great, but that's been the central focus. Um, the big focus from a Nick Kyrgios point of view is how much he's sounding like an elder statesman. And it only took a global pandemic to do that, um, which is great. Uh, he's, he's been saying some... Uh, really sensible things about you know the the exhibitions and then him not going and the reasons why he's not going and and my basic point about all of this is it just drives home this point that tennis is an individual sport so when Nick Kyrgios for example plays he doesn't represent Australia when he's walking out into the middle of Philippe Chatrier, for example. Yes, for Davis Cup and Olympics and all that sort of stuff, that's fine. But we seem to take that sense of ownership of players. You know, why isn't Rafa going and playing the US? Well, it's a personal choice. It's up to them whether they decide to do it. They've got to weigh up all the different factors. And there's been so much information that's come out. We've got it so readily to hand. And the players need to make their own individual decisions. I know there's been, particularly on the Ash Barty side, a bit of criticism. But I don't think there's been any that's come from... Australia because we're still in that situation of being in a lockdown and and understanding how serious this is so we don't begrudge players saying no I'm not going to play here and and working out their own schedules it's entirely up to them. Jill what have you made of you know what Nick's been coming out with uh, in his own inimitable way? Well, I, I agree with Peter. I actually feel like he's been s- sounding very sensible with the way he's approaching this pandemic and his views on it. I watched him make it, that short video that he made uh, just about his announcement that he wasn't going to play the U.S. Open. And I think it's a very personal choice. I, and I think he what he said uh, very clearly and which I kind of which I agreed with. And I think he made a good point was that like, look, it's everyone's choice. He's not Um, You know, that's just his personal opinion that he's not going to play, but he doesn't hold it against any other player. If they choose to go, that's, that's their choice, of course. And I do like the fact that he just, he mentioned that he hoped that they just take the necessary precautions and follow the exact protocols that the U.S. Open will have in place to keep everyone safe, not only each other and not only the players and their teams, but also, you know, the people that are working the event, the volunteers, the staff, everybody. And I, I think that was a really good point that he made. And I, and I thought actually it was, it was great what he said, but I do like the fact that, you know, he does, he does value everybody's opinion and respects their choice. But I, I think that applies to everybody. I don't think anyone should be criticized for if they decide to play or not. I think, um, you know, it, it's up to them and, and their point of view. And I mean, it's a very unusual, weird situation. So I don't think we can hold it against anybody uh, as far as what they choose to do. I think the, the, the biggest thing really is the one thing I've always loved about tennis more than anything else is how global we are as a sport. It is uh, For me, it's the biggest strength. We play all over the world in all different countries. You can be from anywhere in the world. If you take a look at some of the junior events that are played, I mean, they're played you know anywhere from you know all over Africa to Guam. There's an international junior tournament in Guam. It's so global. And it, that means that there is so much travel involved, which unfortunately is just going to really work against us in the near future um, and it's it's something that some other sports don't necessarily have to deal with once they get all of the players or the athletes to an area then they don't have to travel so much but you know yeah I agree I think just 
it's each to their own and the ATP uh, and the WTA as well have changed the ranking system specifically to allow that, to allow people to not play if they can't get somewhere or don't want to, to play that. They've extended those rankings over uh, a longer period of time now. And so, and that's what it's there for. It's there for, for people to, if they're not comfortable, they don't have to, they don't feel like they have to do something just to maintain their position within the sport. So I think that's a you know massive credit to the sport to be kind of acknowledging that and allowing it and okay yes yeah, some people are taking advantage of it and and so they should if they're not entirely comfortable jill you must have been talking to some of the american players i guess as well in in the lead up to these events what 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 uh, are they looking forward to the events are they looking forward to them through a slightly different prism to normal uh, uh, what, what are they kind of saying most of them are are very excited i mean i think all of them have done a really good job of taking this seriously as far as, you know, going to the events, you know, that the women had a very successful event in um, South Carolina. They're having the team tennis events that are going really well. So I think those have been sort of like to see what happens in those events. And so far, everything's, everything's gone um, pretty straightforward, but I think everyone like Naomi said, everyone is anxious to get back. And as far as, I mean, I remember training in the off season and even just two weeks training the off season after two weeks of training, I was like, okay, I need to play a tournament or I need to do something. <laughs> so I can't imagine like having this long period of time off what they, I mean, they're just craving that competition. So, and you know, I've spoken to some people that some staff and some organization, organizational people that are working at the U S open and the protocols that they're taking. And they're, they're doing a very, very tremendous amount to make sure that everyone is going to stay to stay safe. And as far as broadcasters are concerned, in, in specific, we're each going to have our own headset that we take home with us every day. The booths are larger. We're staying like eight feet apart. Um, everyone's going to get tested every four days. You have to get your temperature taken before you go on the shuttle. For the players, they're all going to stay at one hotel and one part away from the city. I won't say specifically where, just just to keep the players' privacy, but they all have to stay in the same. No one's allowed to go to the city, and there's going to be a ton of testing done and everything. So they're, they're doing a lot to make sure that everyone is going to be safe. And in terms of the actual draw, I mean, you know, it's, nobody can really guess how the different players are going to hit the ground running and, and stuff. But given who's not there, uh, it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's a great opportunity for, for Novak Djokovic. But what, what, which kind of players do we think are going to, you know, hit the ground running the best? Well, I think this is a really interesting question because I think typically over the past sort of 10 to 15 years, we've seen the most experienced players be very good at coming back from long periods of time off and just being able to pick up where they left off. But it seems to have kind of gone on a, a bit of a curve because once they've now, we're talking about Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, once they've now kind of gone into their mid to late 30s, it's become a little bit more difficult for them. We saw last year on the clay, Nadal just it took him a while to get going. Okay, he made a few semifinals before he won a title, but he didn't win that title until Rome and he just wasn't quite the Rafa that turns up and says, oh, Clay got this sorted. Um, and it did just take him a little while to get that confidence up. And of course, he then won Roland Garros. He was fine. So we're just talking about a little bit of edge off of there. Looking at Federer as well with his significant layoffs, he used to be able to do that like it was a piece of cake. And it was always the young guys that needed matches, 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 week in, week out. They had to really you know, hone their skills to try and keep up with the experienced ones. 
but now it is starting to become a little bit more difficult for them to, to hit the ground running. I still think they will be able to use their level of experience hugely to their advantage. I think just that level of confidence that you have when you're older in your career as well versus when you're young and you think, I've got to practice, I've got to get out, I've got to be sharp. I think that will, will really benefit them. But when it comes to the, the draws and the people who are in the tournament, you know, it's 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 very strong. You know, yes, we are missing some, but we would normally be missing players due to injury and that sort of thing anyway. So I don't really feel like it's that different. I suppose people's concern was, is somebody going to win a Grand Slam that wouldn't have won a Grand Slam ordinarily? But unless that list dramatically changes, whoever wins the US Open was going to be good enough to win the US Open regardless. You've still got Djokovic there if he goes. If you start losing Djokovic and then maybe one more, then then it starts to become a, a lot more open and the opportunity really there. But I think for the players who are going to really benefit, it's probably a little lower down just because the um, the entry list is going to drop a little lower. So in terms of those players ranked around 100 or just outside, they'll be getting into a main draw they would never have got into before. And, and there might be a few opportunities within the draw to kind of make a third round, fourth round run that might have been a little bit more unlikely in uh, in other times. But in terms of whoever wins this thing is, is going to be a worthy winner. Gilles Simon, uh, and let's face it, Gilles Simon, he's such a wise tennis player, isn't he? So you read anything that Gilles says and you think, oh, that must be right. He was recently asked for the ATP website, actually, who he thought was best equipped. And he said, I think this period is the best for middle-aged players, guys between 25 and 30. I think they already have experience on the tour. It's the right moment for them to improve their game and do a checkup of what's happened in the first part of their career. They're still young and healthy. For them, it will be great. Um, so he's he's kind of going mi- middle of the road, 25 to 30. Dominic team-ish, you know. Peter, who, who, who do you think could rise to the test? I love the fact we're doing demographics research into the players and just going with a particular demographic that's going to be strong. Well, actually, I, I sort of have a, a different take in terms of it's going to be players. We, we see a lot of players. They, they like to be in a routine and set up in a routine so they know exactly what they're going to do when they arrive in New York. They know exactly where they're going to be and how, when they're training, all that sort of stuff. That's being thrown out the window a little bit. Um, there's a couple of factors to this. So I think just as a, a general sweeping statement, those who are already there and training and playing in the United States, I think will have a decided advantage to start off with because they're already going to be in the routine. Those who can get to New York um, pre the two tournaments that are going to be run back to back, the quicker they can get there, I think will be settling into a routine a lot quicker because it's not just hotel to courts like they've would normally have its hotel, health check, go to courts, temperature check, then you get a test, then everything else needs to fall into place. You're not maybe in the same locker room as what you would normally would be every time that you arrive. And it can unsettle players. The other thing too, talk about the players that maybe we talk about the depth in terms of being a bit lower down, is the crowd aspect. We know that the, the top players are used to now playing in front of big crowds and, and feeding off that energy there. That's not going to be there either. So that's going to be an interesting test, I think, for players to see how they react to that because, you know, we see it at challenger level and ITF level the, where there's no crowds and there might be people, you know, occasionally walking past and stopping in and saying, oh, I might watch a couple of games of this. There's not going to be that atmosphere. It's going to be a completely different dynamic to what they're used to. So I think the players who are able to settle into the routine, the new normal 
routine because they won't be used to it will have a decided advantage. And then those who can, uh, within themselves, really fire themselves up and not have to rely on feeding off the crowd for that and get used to that, I think, will be the ones who'll, who'll thrive, really. It's not a demographic, but it, it's sort of a, as a holistic sort of thing. It'll be really interesting to see these first two tournaments, how the players react to it, because it's completely different to what they're used to. That is the voice of tennis commentator Peter Mercato, who's in Australia. Former player Naomi Cavaday is also with us, as is Jill Krabus. And Jill, I just wanted to ask you about that as well, the whole thing with the atmosphere and the different atmosphere with no crowd or certainly fewer fans. How do you see that as a former player? Yeah, I think it's going to be a big change. I mean, a lot of players thrive off that atmosphere and the fans and stuff like that. But I think, yeah, I think Peter made a, made a great point. And one that I was going to touch on is, to me, the best players that are the most successful, that are able to get those titles, are the ones that can adapt to change the best, whether it's in the middle of the match or whether it's a windy day or the sun gets in your eyes or something. I mean, there's all factors. And the ones that are able to kind of let that go more easily and continue on with their match are the ones that do the best. And this is going to be a huge change. And there's going to be a lot of changes. And the ones that can go out there and adapt to that and be able to almost look at it as um, a challenge and be be able to thrive from that point, I think are the ones going to be the most successful. And as far as the younger ones that are concerned or the ones that haven't, don't have that Grand Slam title that feel like it's a big opportunity for them, it's, it's going to come down to if they're going to be able to hold their nerve because there's, they know it's a little bit more of an open draw. There's more opportunities to, and so if they can get in that place where, you know, they settle down and then cave and thrive from that moment. I think it's going to be a huge change. You talk about adaptability and mental strength. I mean, they don't come much stronger than Novak Djokovic. Right at the top of the men's draw, if he is there, we are seriously looking at, I know there's a lot of tennis to be played, but he's unbeaten already this season. Could he go unbeaten for a whole season, given the, the length of the season we're going to have? possible <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> I mean I think um I was actually surprised when I heard that he was coming because I, I know there was some debate about whether he was going to opt to fly to New York I think as far as um I do think it's easier for Europeans to fly because it is a direct flight to New York rather than the Australians having to make a stop and right. you know interacting with more people that way so it's a little bit tougher for the Australians and the Asians and stuff like that so but I I mean it's definitely possible I mean you know, he's just one of the strongest mentally, so I wouldn't be surprised. Andy Murray as well, Naomi, has come out recently and said that he, you know, he doesn't have many of these opportunities left and that he's ready to take it with, you know, both horns. What kind of Andy Murray, having seen him a bit at the Battle of Brits, are we expecting if he if he does play? Things are looking good. The first Battle of the Brits, he played singles um, and he really put out a good level. I mean, at first things were a little rusty, but it was for everyone. It was no surprise at all. And I tell you what, by the end of the event, the event he was absolutely flying. He lost in the semi-finals, but he had really long matches. Okay, we played final set tiebreaker, champions tiebreak to ten, but he was playing back to back, playing every single day a singles match, which was such a real test for his hip. And now the slight concern is that his hip was bothering him. It was painful it was there but it wasn't hindering him and when we last saw him playing at Davis Cup it was hindering him he couldn't move properly because of it so he is being quite cautious and then when he came to the next Battle of the Brits I think it was three to four weeks later uh, in the mixed event he said I'm only playing doubles so he played doubles and he played some mixed he did not want to put the pressure on the singles uh, for that hip so 
Look, he's been given the wild cards into Cincinnati that will be in New York and also into the US Open, although he's only one spot out. So I think he might be able to free up that wild card for somebody else. Are we expecting him on a run to the title? I, I don't see it at all, not not with the, the situation that he's in. But can he play matches, plural, win matches, plural? I, I think absolutely he can. It's very interesting. He spent a lot of time on the practice court as well, I can say, um, getting in a you know good amount of reps there. And, uh, you know, is he 100%? No, he's not. But whether that's really a possibility for him in the future, we just don't know. Is he able to go and play singles at a high level? Yes, he he absolutely is able to do that. And Jill and Peter already spoke a little about the the logistics around players being in bubbles and how things are having to operate now. How much of that did you see and how much of it did you think affected the players and the way they go about their business as well? We saw a lot of that and... I think it is difficult for players to be kind of told what to do and to be doing things differently. Um, they do like their routines. They've done things a certain way for a, a long period of time. And even the ones who are on board, it just it is a real change. You know, it's just it, it really is different and something that they're going to have to get used to, I suppose. But in general, from what we were seeing, everybody was pretty much on board. Everybody was wearing masks at the side of the court, you know, on on the whole, even though we were outside and and we had like a one-way system around the National Tennis Centre. So we had, um, you know, lots of very strict rules in place and everybody followed them and everybody kind of got on board because they realised either you play tennis with these restrictions or you don't. So that, that those are your two options and everybody, without fail, opted to play for tennis. Have we seen the end of towels and ball kids with towels? I mean, is this finally done and dusted now? It's one of those things where it was coming, wasn't it? I think it had been talked about for a little while and people were kind of musing it. We trialled it in, in Milan at the next gen as well with, with, with players doing their own towels. And it just kind of seems that, yeah, wh- why not? Just do it yourself. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? And I think the other thing, too, that's going to be happening at the US Open, we talk about advantages for players. I don't know if there's something in this. I to, we've got plenty of time to think about these things since we can't do anything in Melbourne. But uh, the, the there's going to be the electronic line calling. We're not going to have lines people on most of the courts at Flushing Meadows this, this um, season. So is that a potential advantage for the... Um, the next-gen players who are used to, in Milan, playing without the, uh, the lines people being there. It takes a bit of adjusting, a bit of getting used to with that. But, you know, talk about the, the towels not being there, the line judges not being there too. Is this the start of, of that? I hope it isn't in, in that particular regard because we need plenty of um, line umpires to become chair umpires. I'm not sure what's going to happen to the system there. You take out a whole bunch of people, you lose that pathway through to, to being in the chair. I think that's a serious concern that, we need to look at as a, a tennis community to make sure that that um, keeps rolling along and that keeps happening. But yeah, I mean, the, the towel box, it's just the player's got to remember to pick them up. How many times in Milan did we see them walk to the chair, they put the arm out and there was no one there to, to bring the towel to them? They're going to have to get used to that. So, And also on a big court too. So in Milan, it's quite a small court. If you're at Arthur Ashe Stadium, you could be walking miles to go get your towel before you go to your chair. They've got to get used to that as well. The towels, I think, is a no-brainer. I mean, I don't think I think the players that's something that can change really quickly, and they'll be able to adapt to that. I mean, I just as far as like lines people and 
umpires, I just, or I just feel a little bit sad that, you know, if they're not around that, you know, that's a job that people are losing, which is unfortunate to me. So I kind of think of that. It's just sad if, if, you know, all those people all of a sudden have to kind of look for other things to do for work and stuff like that. And that's, that's been part of the game for so long, but I mean, traditions change and things change and it's going to be interesting to see kind of what holds from here and what um, kind of goes back to what, what we're all used to. But um, I think not only in sports in general, but I think the world is like the realizing how many people can like work from home and stay at home and not have to go into the office as much. But I think having that human interaction is, is so important. And I think that's why the fans are so important for sports is that it's that interaction that you want. And I think that would be really sad if we all of a sudden miss that and, and get rid of that aspect. I think that's, that's really important for sports in general, not just tennis, I think for, for all sports. So um, going forward, I don't, I mean, I can see umpires and, and maybe, maybe not as much linesmen, but umpires I can see coming back, but um, and bulk and ball kids, I would, I mean, I don't even know what they're going to do about the ball kids. Someone was joking with me the other day that they should have like the ball kids should have like a stick where, you know, you pick up the ball, how you sometimes put up the ball for your dog and then throw it (laughs) that the ball kids should be picking up with that, with that stick and then throwing it to the player. But I don't know what they're going to do in that regard, but um, yeah, it's going to come back to back to that being able to adapt to all these changes. For those players who have, you know, dipped their toe in organising events and lots of players, let's face it, have also played in these events. Do you think players will kind of have a newfound respect almost for events and the ATP and the tour and just the way that things need to be done to make things tick along in in the way that they do? Well, I think you only need to to look at the tournaments, that the smaller tournaments that haven't been running this particular year and, and the reactions from tournament directors and tournament staff and, and we're talking 250 level, we're talking challenger level, we're talking ITF level, of these events that run year after year and um, some of them there's this very fine margins in terms of, of tournaments going ahead, tournaments not going ahead, what sort of financial support that they get, they just haven't been able to happen. It's not just a matter of, of turning off the tap and saying, oh, we're just not going to run this year. There are so many different moving parts to every single event that, that happens and you know, the viability of these events going forward. I mean, we haven't heard too many or any sort of reports about for next year, particularly on the calendar or 2022 tournaments going out of business or having to change or anything like that. And I think, you know, national federations are are stepping up. I think the ATP and WTA are stepping up as well to sort of protect these events. But, you know, it's it's a different dynamic altogether. Some of the smaller events, the bigger ones, yes, that they'll they'll go on and, and they'll survive and everything like that. And we've talked about insurance and Wimbledon did a great thing in terms of it didn't run, but it, it looked after the players who were going to be playing in the main draw, and that that was fantastic. But these smaller events don't have that opportunity, and I think we you know we appreciate more the the week in week out now that we don't have it the week in week out tournaments that are the lifeblood for a lot of players because not only is it affecting the tournaments it's affecting those players who this is their income this is their living and you know it's going to force maybe force a few people out of the, out of the sport which is going to be terrible because they just can't make a living out of it what about the calendar i mean early on in lockdown we actually spoke with andrea gaudenzi the new atp chairman and it, it was really interesting and he it was interesting how open he was to almost pressing the reboot button on 
tennis and the way things are, are thought about and you know how much the ATP and WTA and the four Grand Slams and even the ITF work together. He seemed very open to the the you know the idea of more collaboration. Have you seen Jill Nemi as as former WTA players? Have you seen that maybe moving forward more than you thought it might? I think there's definitely more communication between the two, between the governing bodies, I would say. I mean, they've always communicated with each other, but I think there's been differing views. And I think, um, in my opinion, this pandemic, you know, it's something that's actually affecting everyone, you know, globally to a serious extent. So I think, you know, they've had to sort of come together a little bit more and communicate a little bit more often while tournaments aren't happening and things aren't going on and, um, you know, how to deal with this serious situation. So I think it has helped them become more like of a collaborative unit, which is, which is great to see and to try and work together through this, through this pandemic that we're going to. So I, through that, I, I think it's great that they've been able to come together even more and sort of put in protocols that they think will help all the players as a whole. And in terms of the calendar, is it realistic to have a more, consolidated compact calendar for men and women and sort of sell tennis as as one big product a little bit more than perhaps it is being done I don't think so. Uh, I, I think that you know the WTA has been you know a professional organisation for such a long time now. It is so well established. It is the biggest sport in the world when it comes to being a female athlete by a country mile, and it does mean that there's just a little bit of a, a different landscape when it comes to those things. I think we might we could potentially see some rejigging of the the tournaments that are already kind of where they work together, the tournaments where we're already on site at the same time and playing in the same events. So the slams, the, the big tournaments, those sorts of things Like, yeah, of course they could look at the schedule. They could try and rejig things, but it is just so different, you know, like with the, you can see how the pandemics affected things with the WTA, say post us open, everything is so China heavy and it's very, it's all pretty much Asia, but it is, it's very, very focused in China. So the WTA have been hit much harder than the, the ATP have with the cancellation of all events in, in China. But that has been a, that's an investment and a really long-term investment in China as well. That is, that is absolutely looking ahead to the next decade plus in terms of what they're, they're doing over there. So it's a little bit of a different strategy to what the ATP have put forward. So, I mean, in terms of them coming together, I agree with Jill. I think this has forced all of the organizations, including the ITF as well, which is incredibly important, they definitely seem to be more on the same page, um, communicating. They, they all need each other now. There's no sort of one is ahead of the others. It, it, they, they all have to work together. But in terms of actually putting the tours together and, and being more collaborative in that sense, I, I just don't really see how that would work. But... As broadcasters, we must all have enjoyed Tennis United. Vasek Pospisil, Bethany Matek sounds they've done a pretty good job. I've enjoyed it. Peter, what have you made of it? Very good to see the personalities of the players. They're very relaxed. They're not in tournament mode. They're not even thinking that way when often they're, they're talking. It's great to see them um, doing it, utilising the technology to be able to do it as well. And I think that the players appreciate that outlet. We've seen uh, a different side to, to some of them. Although I will put in um, one request... Um, along the way here and one thing that we do need to think about because the Bryan brothers are scheduled to retire at the US Open I don't think that can happen Jill if we you could just have a word to them because we haven't had the fair proper farewell tour 
because there's been no tour all the way through. So the deal is that they were going to play all the way through. They get to the US Open, they retire, say goodbye to all the fans. Well, there ain't going to be fans or many fans that are going to be there. So that's the first problem. They're not going to celebrate their birthday in Barcelona. That is a tradition. That didn't happen this year either. So I think we need to start a campaign to ensure that the Bryan brothers play one more year. Yes, it can be an abbreviated schedule, but they need to go on in 2021 so they can have a proper farewell. And I think, you know, some of those players, if you're thinking about retiring, hold on for one more year so we can have a proper goodbye. I think that's not too much to ask, is it? I will relay, I will relay the message. I don't think anyone would argue with you, Peter. <laughs> I hope they I hope they play for a lot longer. I mean, and I th- I did think of that the other day. How I was like, well, I just mentioned it to to someone I think a few days ago that I was like, wow, this was supposed to be their last year of playing and they're not getting that year, but I think I think I don't know. I I think there's quite a few people probably in that boat that maybe we don't even know that it was their last year too that they didn't make that announcement that you just hope they sort of continue just a little bit longer so they get their fair at least to say their farewell the the way they would like to. And are, are we going to see Federer now play into, until he's 40? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I think so. Well, he he's, has talked openly about the Olympics. So obviously, the Olympics hasn't happened this year. It's on next year. He wants. He's very much set that as a focus to, to play that. He's been the master of his own schedule and sorting out you know, what works for him. Obviously, he was taking half the year off anyway before all of this sort of really hit home in terms of when we were playing and when we weren't playing. So, you know, that that's going to be a, a sense of rejuvenation for him because he's had the whole half year off. He's had the operations. He's done everything he needs to do in Australia. And just quickly from an Australian perspective, um, Australian Open organisers are, are pressing ahead. We're, we're full steam ahead. Yes, there'll be reduced crowds and, and all of you know how many people we get in, in Melbourne. That probably isn't going to happen, but there will be some crowds there and we've got to put quarantine processes and everything into place. So there's still a bit to work out, but it looks like it's going to go ahead. It looks like most people will be coming along. Roger will be there. He'll set his schedule again. We could get one, maybe two years out of him. We know we're getting close to the end, but we just don't want it to finish. So I'm happy for him to keep playing till he's 105, to be honest. So we've got the Australian Open to look forward to. We've got more Brian Brothers, hopefully. We've got more Roger Federer. What else? Jill, what are you looking forward to? I'm still hoping, cross my fingers, the US Open is going to happen. I mean, everything changes on a daily basis. So... I didn't even think about Australian Open yet, but I mean, we, but we, we have such an affinity to so many of these players because we've, you know, watched them play so many matches that you kind of don't want to see any of them go really. So, I mean, I'm fully in, in favor of what Peter said, you know, how the Bryan brothers play another year. I don't know. I mean, they've had some injuries too. And I know Bob struggled a, a little bit um, as far as getting the surgery and stuff like that. So it's going to depend on how they're feeling, but I think they're getting a good rest. I would love to see Roger back another year as well, but to be honest, like I get sad when anybody goes, so <laughs> I don't want anyone to retire. <laughs> exactly. Naomi, what a final thought, something good to come out of all of this. Well, I think there are quite a lot of, of positives in the long run. I mean, if you just think when we think back to, okay, as I say, as Jill said, fingers crossed, everything happens. But say the schedule does happen as is expected over the next few months. I mean, looking back at those Grand Slams, I mean, they're going to be extraordinarily unique. And what a, a bizarre sort of way to win. Just a couple of people in your box and not many people in, in the stadium would be, be quite a, a, a bizarre uh, way to do it. Uh, but of course, just a, a completely unique situation and something unique to be a part of as well. And then I think just on the 
the larger scale, I mean, I know when it comes to the UK, tennis has never been more healthy in terms of just as a sport with participation numbers, because when uh, lockdown started to be lifted, the only uh, sports you were able to to play were tennis, um, solo golf and um, fishing. And I mean, tennis courts have just been rammed. Everybody's been trying to do it. Uh, and that really saved the sport in this country. There was a really big worry as soon as Wimbledon got cancelled. Of course, that is the it's the biggest sport sporting annual event in this country by by a mile. It is absolutely huge. And to and it just gets so much momentum going. So um, actually, things have, have worked out quite well in 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 that sense that, that tennis is looking really strong and really healthy. So maybe... The next generations, maybe we'll get the benefits of it in 10, 15 years. Who knows, with the kids that started playing tennis because they had nothing else to do. My thanks to Naomi Cavaday, Peter Mercato and Jill Krabus, all of whom will be involved in one form or another as we bring you live ball-by-ball commentary of the remaining major events in 2020. And that will start on Saturday, the 22nd of August with the full week of the Western and Southern Open. That event concludes on Friday the 28th and will then be simulcasting the US Open courtesy of US Open Radio. For details on the other live commentaries we'll bring you this year, keep an eye on our social media channels. That's at ATP Tennis Radio on Twitter and Instagram. And check back in with the podcast next week when we'll bring you another guest out of the top draw. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.